Uh, this week was a very interesting week for me uh, as a pastor. I had one of those weeks where I had quite a few people uh, in my office during the course of the week talking about various things that were going on in their lives, questions that they had about things and so forth. It was, it was very unusual uh, in that sense. And I didn't know it was going to be like that when I first started off on Monday. I usually pick the hymns that we're going to sing uh, Monday morning. It's one of the first tasks that I do in the week. I get, the, uh, I get them chosen and get the music ready and get them sent off to the accompanist so that she knows what we're going to be working on for what, if she needs it in advance. She never does, but if she needs it. Uh, we, uh, we have them all ready by Monday. And I typically try to pick hymns that I know are going to, in a sense, fit with what I'm going to be preaching on. Even though I haven't even really started the sense of the sermon yet, but I've read the passage so many times that I'm, I kind of get the picture of where I'm going to go, and so I try to pick some hymns. But I think this week... The, the hymns themselves uh, are, are going to fit the topic we're going to talk about, but much of what we talked about amongst the people that came to my office over the course of the week has really had more of an effect upon the sermon that I'm going to preach to you this morning because in a very strange sort of way, uh, a lot of what we talked about is going to dovetail into what John is talking about in this little letter. Second John is where we are at, and we continue our odyssey through this little letter, we started off at the beginning of it where John introduces himself and then he uh, identifies who he's writing to, who his audience is, the dear lady and her children, you remember? He, he then greets them and then he commends them. We see all that in the first four verses. And what you have is a pastor who is rejoicing over the fact that his audience is being affected by the truths revealed to them in the gospel. He's rejoicing over the fact that these are a people who are actually taking Scripture and applying it to their lives. They're living out the gospel. And I say that from the perspective of all of those that came to my office. There's this kind of people who are like, I want to know how this works. All right, very good. So this is a pastor rejoicing over a flock. And he then, in verse 5, puts forth his thesis. Why? He wrote this letter. Two Sundays ago, we, we looked at this thesis, you remember. He, he wrote this letter as an ask. Notice how he says, I ask you, dear lady. Okay, And we pointed out that that's not really an ask. It's, a, it's an ask, but it's a command. It's a, it's a command to be obeyed rather than a possible choice to be considered. In other words, in a pastoral sense, John asks the dear lady to do something. Okay? Out of a sense of gentleness, okay? He's trying to be careful with her. He's trying to make sure that he's trying to use that pastoral sense towards her. But it is clear that he means to do, he means for them to do what he's asked them to do, okay? Period. He said to them, I'm asking you, but I'm not really asking. I'm using my apostolic authority to ask you, which means I'm being pastoral, but I'm wanting you to make sure you understand I'm asking you to do something. And what he asks her to do is the thesis of the letter, his point in writing the letter. The elect lady is commanded to do what God has called all born-again believers to do, and that is to love others as Christ has loved us. To love others as Christ has loved us. To love others as self-sacrificially as Christ himself did. To put aside all sense of self and to turn our attention to others and love them as Christ has loved us. Now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one that we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. And remember, John said, this, isn't a, this really isn't a new commandment. Okay, I'm, I'm, John says, I'm not adding anything to what you already know. You already know this. You already understand what you're supposed to do. You already get it. You are supposed to love others. And it's been a command from the beginning of time. We'll come back to that in a minute. But the fact is that you know this. So it's not a new commandment. And yet it is a new commandment in the sense that it's now possible for you to do. It's a commandment that you can actually do because Christ has come and accomplished something. And because he has accomplished something in you and drawn him to himself, you're now able to do what many generations of humans have never been able to do. So it's, it's an old commandment that's a new commandment at the same time in that paradoxical sense. All right, so John has given us his thesis. 
love one another. Love one another as Christ has loved you. Love one another as Christ has given himself for you. So now, this morning, we're going to start into verses 6 to 9. And in these verses, in these four verses, John is going to explain why that thesis holds. He's going to give us, he's going to give us his reasons to support his thesis. And in theological circles, we call this the indicatives of the letter. The indicatives of the letter. Some of you are familiar with my use of that word. Others of you may not be. So let me explain what I mean by indicatives. Indicatives are truth claims. An, indic- an indicative is a truth claim. Let me put it like this. This is indicated as true. Okay? It's an indicative in the sense that it's something that's true. It is a, a truth claim. It's a, it's a theological reality that drives radical choices in life. It's a truth that you understand so profoundly that it drives the way you think and act. It's an indicative. It's a truth claim that lays hold of you, in a sense. Okay, when we say, Jesus rose from the dead, that's an indicative. But it's not just a truth claim. It's a a statement that causes a fact, right? If Jesus rose from the dead, then what should be our response to that? How does that affect us as we live? I realize that there's, you know, millions of people who believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and yet it has no effect on their lives. But it should. So John is going to give a series of truth claims. There are things revealed by God that are so profound that they demand action on the part of those believing them. Probably the best example that we have in the New Testament is the book of Romans, where all of Romans 1.18 through 11.36 are Paul's indicatives proving the validity of the thesis that he put before his audience in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. A whole series of truth claims, of who human beings are, what it means to be justified by faith, why Abraham is an excellent example of it, how Christ is the first or is the, the last Adam to come and do what the first Adam failed to do, and that as a result of that comes sanctification, and on and on and on it goes. Truth claims one after another after another after another, attempting to prove why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Let me prove to you why. Here's what I believe to be true. Here's what has been revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the power of God as it's revealed in the gospel. These are the truth claims, Paul says, that prove this. A message made up of a series of truth claims that in total reveal what is his gospel. You want to know what the gospel is? Here it is. All of these truth claims are the gospel. So the indicatives then, in this case, are truths that support the thesis. John is going to give us, in this section then, three great truth statements of what it means to live out love as followers of Christ. What it means to live out, what what, what that thesis is. What does it mean to live by loving others? What does that really mean? And he's going to give three great truth claims to that, and he's going to do so specifically in the face of what seems to be great obstacles to doing so. Great obstacles to doing so. Okay, okay, Apostle John, you tell me I'm supposed to love one another. Why? And listen, there's great trouble in doing so. Tell me how I get past that. So John is going to give three great truth claims in these four verses that are designed to help us understand that thesis. Love one another. Our response, why? His response, truth claim, truth claim, truth claim. There are three of them. The first... Is found in verse 6, that the believer is called to walk a unique path from the ways of the world. A second in verse 7, there will be deceivers who will try to sway you from that path. And truth claim number 3, true love, therefore, is to persevere, persevere through such trials, through the truth of Christ. Or let's sum them all together. The call to love one another is not just some suggestion that super-Christians are to follow, but it's at the very heart of the Christian faith. It is a call to persevere in faith 
in loving others. It's that simple. A call to persevere in faith, in loving one another. John's going to lay out these three theses, or these three indicatives then, in order to prove his point. All right, so this morning we're going to start into the first of these three in verse 6, where he writes, And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Now, does that sound familiar to you? If you've been here for any amount of time, you've heard that before. Because that's precisely what John said in 1 John. Okay, it's, a, it's almost identical to several verses that we see in 1 John. And specifically 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, and 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, where he writes this, quote, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome, unquote. All right, so that's, John has already said that in his first letter. All right, this is my opinion. My opinion is, is that the elect lady, to whom John is writing the second letter, is probably aware of what John had already written in the first. Seems reasonable, doesn't it? That whoever the audience was of the second letter would probably have, in some way, have known what it is that John would say in the first letter. Or, I might say it even more broader than that, whoever received this letter, the elect lady and her children, were probably familiar with John's way of thinking to begin with. Which seems to be the core of the first letter anyways. It's all about the love of God. At least the second two-thirds of the letter are all about God is love and what it means to love. So it's highly likely that anybody would have had any contact with John whatsoever and been familiar with him at all would have certainly understand what made his heart beat, don't you think? So John doesn't elaborate here in this second letter. He just states it and goes forward with it. He doesn't elaborate more on the subject because he thinks the topic is already well addressed either in his first letter or in his relationship with them, in some sense. So, John didn't go into it in any detail, because he's just sort of left that for them to recognize what he's talking about. But for our sake, let's review. Because maybe we have forgotten what it is that John said so long ago. He says in this verse, we walk according to his commandments. That word commandment, as you see, is used twice just in this verse. So it's, it's obviously something that John is trying to get across. And we have talked about the commandments as the obedience of the Christian. That the obedience of the Christian is the reality within them that connects them to Christ. Let me say that again. The commandments is the reality within the Christian, that connects them to Christ. What connects us to Christ? Do we have a little piece of paper in our pocket that connects us to Christ? Well, no, not necessarily. Do we have some sort of ethnic background or birth-related connection to Christ? No. <clears throat> what do we have? We have a connection to Christ by virtue of who he is, our faith in him, and thus our obedience to him our connection to him by virtue of who he is as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and thus our willingness to submit ourselves to him. Because that's fundamentally what faith is, isn't it? Submitting ourselves to the one who we're putting our faith in. So it's the connection of the Christian to Christ, the reality within us that connects us to Christ. Now, this word commandments is explicit, as you know. When we think about it, it's the full, fullest implication of God's law over all of life. Excuse me. <clears throat> Got a little tickle there all of a sudden. The fullest implication of God's law, maybe it's because I don't want to talk about commandments. <coughs> and so it's like, don't, <clears throat> don't talk about commandments. All right. But we're going to talk about commandments. <coughs> when we talk about the commandments, as we see in the Bible, there's three different interpretations of how men have understood that word. All of them are valid. <coughs> the first, when you think of the commandments, of course, you think about the ten words of the law. So you think of the Decalogue. You think of the Ten Commandments as given in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, literally. 
in this case, the literal ten words of the law. And that word that's given is the moral foundation of all other law codes down through human history. The foundational reality of the ten words given to Israel on Sinai, what we call the Ten Commandments, is the foundational reality of all law codes on this planet. Thou shalt not kill is established in every law system on the planet. Is it because smart men over time realize you ought not to kill one another? Or is it because God established, by virtue of his very nature as God, the idea that he is the giver of life, and therefore one should not take life? Well, it's obviously the latter, isn't it? The commandments represent the foundation of all other law codes. The Ten Commandments become the moral foundation upon which the other great pillars of Israelite life stood. The civil law and the ceremonial laws. The civil law meaning all of the various relationships of Israelite to Israelite and even to foreigners. And then the ceremonial, all of the laws related to Israel's connection to God. How they worshipped, how they practiced their various connections to God in a vertical sense. The moral code, the commandments, stood as the foundation under those two great pillars. So at a minimum, when you read that, at a minimum, when John says we keep his commandments, we walk according to his commandments, at a minimum, we understand it as the one who recognizes the value of God's moral code. Okay, so at a foundation, it's, okay, I recognize I'm made in the image of God, there's a moral code, I'll walk according to it. That's one interpretation. But it's the, it's the lowest common denominator uh, interpretation. So let's try a second interpretation. And it's not just the law itself, but the spirit of the law that comes forth from it. Not only what it says in a literal jot and tittle sense, but the very spirit of the Decalogue extending out from the original. Best example, of course, is Jesus' own interpretation of the Decalogue in the Sermon on the Mount, which, by the way, he preached to his own followers. And the point was to say to them, listen, you have heard it said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you, you should not look lustfully after woman. There's a spirit beyond the literal. Thou shalt not kill, it's not just don't stab your brother, but it's also love your brother. Recognize that your relationship to your brother has to be more than just something where you don't take and shoot him. There's more to it than that. The spirit given underneath it. And Jesus was the first to stand up and say, listen, to understand the Decalogue, to understand the Ten Commandments, isn't just to understand the jot and tittles of the commandments, but to understand all of its ramifications in all of life how it extends itself out to all of what it means to be human and to live as one in God's order. So at a minimum, the commandments are the basic keeping of the moral code, but at normal, what we would say, is it's one who sees life as more than just doing good. Okay, It's one who sees life as more than just doing good. There's a sense in which Jesus expresses the commandments to be something that ought to overtake our lives in such a way that we we don't just go through life trying to keep a few rules, but we find the spirit of that law. Now, of course, our argument would be as Christians that no man can do that without the regenerative work of the Spirit of God, But and that's why this is written to Christians. So, at a minimum, it's just keep the law. At normal, it would be recognize the spirit of it and live it. But there is a third, and it's even higher than that. It's a higher claim upon us that comes out of the commandments. And I call this higher plane a life of living, now get this, free from the law. And that's kind of a self-imposed contradiction, it seems. As though you're saying keeping the law is to not keep the law. Well, that's exactly what I'm saying. It's the true life of the believer. It's a way of thinking and acting that's even higher than just being conformed under the law. In other words, it's a life that sees Christ-likeness as the goal. So it's even a step higher than just saying, well, I'm just going to try to keep the spirit of the law. It's a life even higher that says, not only am I going to try to keep the spirit of the law, but I'm going to try to be transformed myself into the very image of the one who gave it in the first place. That my goal is not just to go through life and try to be good and happy towards others and at least, you know, recognize I'm not supposed to lust and I'm not supposed to be angry with my brother and all those other kinds of things. All that's fine. But a higher level which says I'm going to even try to become like the one who 
gave us this law. It's the life of Christ himself. Jesus didn't just keep the commandments out of rote, right? He didn't just keep the commandments out of rote. No, he kept them because it was fundamental to his nature. As the Son of God, as the divine one in human flesh, that law wasn't just something he contemplated, well, okay, I get it, I'm not supposed to lust after the cute girl or whatever. No, Jesus kept that law because it was fundamental to his nature as the divine one. And that's the goal for us. For us to live out that Christ-likeness like him by the power of the Spirit, where he is working through us to accomplish his purposes in us. It's, it's the believer walking with Christ as Savior and Master and Lord in the power of the Spirit. Where the Spirit is guiding us to become all that God has purposed for us to be. Not just law keepers, but even at a higher level than that. Even at a higher level than that. So at best then, at a minimum, it's just keeping the law. At normal, it's just keeping the spirit of the law. But at best, then, it's the one who seeks to mimic Christ. The one who seeks to imitate the Lord of glory. Striving to be fully outwardly what the Spirit has made us inwardly. If the Spirit has made us new creatures in Christ, if he has taken out the heart of stone and given to us a heart that loves the law and loves God then outwardly we should want to be all of what that implies. And that's at a much higher level than just walking along trying to keep a few rules and regulations or even just trying to keep the spirit of the law. It's being conformed to the fullness of the image of God, even as Paul says, that we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. This salvation that has come to us is much more than just keeping some commandments. This salvation that has come is for God to transform us so that we one day stand before his son and he recognizes us because he sees himself in us. So this commandment that we walk, we are to walk according to his commandment. We are to walk in a way in which we are pursuing after what it means to be transformed by the Spirit of God. But I want to stop for a second and insert something here that I did not insert when we talked about this whole issue in 1 John. Because what you just got there, the last five minutes or so, was a summary of much longer sermon series in 1 John. All right, I just compressed all of that. That's why it all sounded familiar to you, for those of you who are with me through 1 John. But I want to I talk about something else here that I find interesting. Because there's a natural tendency in us as human beings to look at that word commandment and see it in this way. We are creatures who love law. Now, you say, What? I thought human beings were rebellious against law. I thought they hated law. I thought they they wanted they didn't want anything to do with the law. I thought you said that reprobates are reprobates. No. We love law. We just don't love God's law. Okay? But we still love law. We are creatures created in the image of God to know that there are boundaries, that we have been established as moral creatures, and so our tendency is to surround ourselves with laws. Okay. How many laws are on the books? How many federal laws are on the books at this point? Anybody know? I went looking for an answer to that question this week, and I couldn't find a single website that would tell me the answer to that. Okay? But I know this. The best estimates are more than a million. They're on the books, even now. So here's the thing. We love law. We just don't want God's law. Whose law do we want? We want our own laws. We like to build walls around ourselves because it makes us feel safe. You see, we feel safe. We recognize as human beings that anarchy is not a good thing. I mean, we know that. We inherently understand that people just running around doing whatever they want to do is a bad thing. It doesn't work. Okay, it just creates chaos. 
So we know that. We want to create laws. The problem is we don't want God's laws. We want our laws. And so there's a temptation to read this word commandments and insert a human aspect to it. And the human aspect to it falls into one of two categories. There's a ditch on either side of the road that we have a tendency to fall into. As we're going down this road of life, we have a tendency to fall either into one side or the other. And the two sides, well, there's three to this thing. We'll start with the first. They all start with the letter L. And the first one is called legalism. Legalism. Legalism is, uh, is defined as the application of man-made rules. Specifically within the framework of the church. And specifically adding to the message of, a, of the gospel in an effort to prevent, quote-unquote, the Christian from falling away. How many of you are familiar with the old Baptist term, backsliding? Ever heard that term before? Sure you have. Some of you don't want to raise your hand because you're embarrassed that you know that word. It's a good word, actually. But not when used within the framework of legalism. Legalism is the idea of applying man-made rules within the church, adding rules so that we feel safe within the framework even of the church, right? You think about the best examples that come to mind. You have the Jewish leadership in the first century. You have the law of God given through Moses, but then you have more than 600 different specific regulations given by the Jewish leadership on how you're supposed to do that, right? Keep holy the Sabbath day. And what's the natural tendency to, well, what does that mean? Okay, you can carry this much weight, no more than that, and you can walk this far, but no farther, and you can do this, but not that, and so on, and so on, and so on, right? That's adding to the law regulations and codes of, of behavior that are designed to make us feel safe. See, because, because look, if God says keep, Sabbath, keep holy the Sabbath day, and, and, and the Pharisee says don't lift more than this, then I know I'm safe, inside keeping the Sabbath if I don't lift more than that, you see. Which, of course, is preposterous, right? In the end, because you're going to have to have 50,000 different regulations to define what the Sabbath is supposed to look like in terms of just how far and how wide and how high, right? I had a professor at Bethel University um, who uh, went to Jerusalem to study at the University of Jerusalem. And, of course, he's a Gentile, right? So on the weekends, he would go down to one of the local hotels and he would stand in the elevator, and the good Jews would pay him to push the button for the floor that he, they wanted to get to. He said he made a good living at it. Made a great living at it. Mm-hmm. We the very first, when we moved into our house in Birmingham, we remodeled the kitchen at one time. We bought a stove, a gas stove. Sorry, it was a gas stove. And um, uh, it had a Sabbath mode where you could put the food in on Friday, push the button, and it would automatically start and heat on Saturday for you. It had a Sabbath mode. Never used it, but it had a Sabbath mode. Paul had to address this, you know. I, I think about the fact that the very first letter that Paul writes, we know, is written to the Galatian churches after his first missionary journey. And if you've ever read the book of Galatians, you know that Paul is hot as he comes out swinging about the Judaizers who have added so much to the gospel of justification by faith that he preached while he was there. It's legalism. Legalism destroys the basic substance of salvation by faith alone, for it adds the ongoing requirements of man-made regulations to what it means to be saved. You can go into a typical Baptist church in our day and ask, okay, how do you know you're saved? And the answer is typically, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. And why did you do those things? Because they told me I was supposed to. That's called legalism. It's not justification by faith alone now. It's justification by faith plus all these other things. Smells a great deal like room. Legalism, then, is one of the errors that is fallen into when we think of this word commandment. But there is another, and it's called licentiousness. 
comes out of the word license, or licentiousness. Now, this is the application of man-centered passions to the message of the gospel. Again, in an effort to throw off any restrictions and supposedly to enjoy freedom to do as we please under grace. Now, I will suggest to you that licentiousness then, or basically just saying, no law for me, I can do what I want, okay? That's a knee-jerk reaction to legalism, typically. Okay, it's a knee-jerk reaction. It's a reaction of, of, of assuming that, okay, I'm now... I want to get away from legalism. It's also, I find, the knee-jerk reaction or the knee-jerk tendency of recently converted believers, immature believers, to assume that grace allows us to live as we please. Well, because our sin is covered by grace, right? I mean, now I've come to faith in Christ, I believe. Okay, so guess what? I'm free to do what I want to now because Christ has covered my sins. In fact, Remember that Paul, as Paul is writing his indicatives in the book of Romans, when he gets to chapter 6, he addresses his interlocutor, the fictitious person that he's talking to, who asks this question. Well, then are we free to go on sinning in any way that we want to then? I'm paraphrasing, but can I do what I want now because grace has covered all my sins? Am I free to just live any way that I want to? And, and Paul's reaction, I think if he were standing here in modern English, would say, what's the matter with you? Christians don't think like that. You're thinking like that. He, his way of saying it is by no means. But again, he is saying, can we continue in sin? He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to it still live in it? Now, like legalism, licentiousness destroys the basic sub- substance of salva- salvation by grace alone. Why? Because it presumes upon the nature of Christ's work and subtracts the importance of submission and obedience. It's the knee-jerk reaction to legalism. Well, I don't want any rules imposed upon me, so I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. Now, Some of you may be convinced that legalism and licentiousness are opposites of one another. They are not. They are not. They are both errors on the same side of the spectrum. They're both errors on the same side of the spectrum. Both legalism and licentiousness on this side of the spectrum are actually violations of what God has actually said to us. The opposite of legalism is not licentiousness, and the opposite of licentiousness is not legalism. The opposite of both is liberty. The opposite of both is liberty. Both legalism and licentiousness are artificial forms of faith and love. They're artificial. They're created by men, in such a way as to say, this is success. They promise success, but they never deliver it. The legalist promises success. You do this, 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 you'll be a good Christian. It doesn't work. And the licentious person says, well, you don't have to do any of these things, you'll just do whatever you want to. And it also winds up in the same ditch as legalism. A form of thinking, notice, a form of thinking that is self Centered. Both legalism and licentiousness are fundamentally self-centered. In legalism, it's what must I not do. In licentiousness, it's what I'm allowed to do. But what is it all about? Me. It's all about me. But the gospel makes it clear that both of those two things can never achieve what it is that Christ has delivered for us. Because both are errors of enslavement. Both are errors of enslavement. Legalism enslaves us to man-made rules. Licentiousness enslaves us to man-centered passions. Legalism says, follow all these rules and you'll be good. Slave, you become a slave to the rules. Licentiousness says, do whatever you want to and you become a slave to your own passions and your own desires because it's all about you in both 
Both are errors. Both fail to grasp and apply what it means to walk according to his commandments. Because both ideals embrace this fallen world. Both legalism and licentiousness both come out of this world, this world's way of thinking. Legalism comes out because we're all filled up as law keepers. We all want law. We all make laws. We make laws for ourselves. The whole world's filled with it. It's a worldly way of thinking. But licentiousness is as well because what is the main idea in this culture? Do whatever you want to do. Who cares? And celebrate the fact that everybody does whatever they want to do. Both are coming out of a world a worldview from this fallen world, from the normal in this world. The true opposite of both of these is liberty. Both legalism and licentiousness have the opposite of liberty, meaning freedom from enslavement to man-made rules and man-centered passions to pursue a personal and profound relationship with Christ. Freedom from man-centered rules and man-centered passions to serve Christ. That's liberty. It is odd for us as human beings to assume that obedience to Christ is not enslavement. Our natural tendency is to say, well, wait a second. If it's rules, it's enslavement, right? So what do we want? No rules. Freedom. But that's a false freedom. Because there is no such freedom in this world. You may throw off all the shackles of legalism, but you're going to wind up in the licentious world in which you're now enslaved to your own passions. The true true freedom and liberty comes in actually coming to Christ and submitting yourself to Him. This is why most churches get this wrong. Right here. This is why most churches get this wrong. Because most preachers think that if you get up in the pulpit and preach people submitting themselves to Christ and following his commands and serving him and loving him, that you're actually enslaving them. And so what do they preach? Legalism or licentiousness. Thinking that somehow that is going to set their people free. Hey, when you come to church X over here, we're going to let you do whatever you want to do. No restrictions upon your life at all. Just go be whatever you want to be. But that just creates more enslavement and a greater enslavement. And an enslavement you very hard have a very hard time escaping from. No, the true freedom of the gospel, the true freedom that comes to us in Christ is him as Lord and Master. Now, Paul says, uh, I'm sorry, Paul, that other, this other guy, John, he says... <clears throat> He says, this is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning. Now, I I spoke about that a little bit, but let me just probe that a bit more. From the beginning. From the beginning of what? From the beginning of what? And the answer to that question that we discovered in 1 John, as we talked about it there, is the time prior to the fall where man lived in utter harmony with God and with each other. That's the beginning. We're not, talking about the, we're not talking about the beginning of Christ's gospel. We're not talking about the beginning of Israel. We're not talking about the beginning of the church age. We're talking about the beginning of time. When God created man upon the earth and set Adam in the garden and said to him, you now, you and I are now going to have an intimate fellowship, a sentient being to sentient being. We're going to walk and talk together and you're going to enjoy my glorious presence, God says to Adam, and you're going to... You're going to probe the infinite creativity of this universe that I have established for you, and you're going to use all of the gifts and talents and abilities that I have given to you in order to do this. God has given to Adam and Eve a relationship, a pure, holy relationship between himself and man. And so liberty is the return to the freedom to know God. Liberty is the freedom to serve God, to relate to God, all as Adam did, but for us to do it in Christ. The other Adam, the final Adam, the last Adam. In a sense, 
Liberty is a return to the garden where we have the utter freedom to truly love God and others. When Adam sinned and Eve sinned, they were banished from that garden. They were banished from the presence of God. They were banished from the tree of life. They had no more relationship with God in that purely face-to-face kind of relationship that they had. I remember my, my good friend in Mobile who died of COVID a few years ago said to me that one of the most profound things I ever preached from during the years that I was preaching in Birmingham was the fact that I said that Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 demonstrates the wonderful relationship that God had with Adam. For God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And I extended that to say, like he did every day. That's where we're trying to get to. It's to that place. To live in the new realm of a world centered on Christ, to serve him rather than our passions. See, Paul describes this. Romans chapter 7, Paul describes this. He he talks about, in Romans chapter 7, as the result of justification by faith, which is outlined in Romans 1 to 4, and as the center of sanctification by faith, which follows from it in Romans 5 and 6. Okay, so Romans 1 to 4, Paul talks about the need for justification by faith and what it is. And then 5 and 6, he talks about the center of sanctification. What's the center of sanctification, according to Paul? Christ. Christ as the the coming Adam, the new Adam, the one who came and did what the first Adam failed to do so miserably. Which is what gets Paul to start off the first part of Romans 7. First First three verses of that chapter, he uses an illustration. He talks about a married woman... And he talks about the fact that a married woman is bound to her husband as long as the husband is alive, but as soon as the husband died, she's free to marry another, right? That's the marriage law, till death do us part. And so we are not free to marry another until our spouse dies, but if our spouse dies, we're free to marry another. No one would think twice about it if you married someone else after your spouse had died because you're free. Okay, so that's Paul's, Paul's point. Here's the point. He's saying, listen, there's a law. That law is such that, you know, when you die to something... Okay, you're free now. So when the husband dies, the wife is freed from the law. So he turns that illustration that in verses 4 to 6, he applies it by saying that the Christian is no longer bound to the old laws of legalism or licentiousness since he has died to both of them. Now, the illustration goes a little haywire here. And if you've ever written a paper on Romans 6, like I have, you have, to, you have to figure out how this works. But Paul's basic principle works. The, the marriage principle is, look, if one of the parties dies, the remaining partner is free to go and live. Okay, that law is death terminates the, the covenant relationship. Okay, that's the point. Death terminates the covenant relationship. And so that's what he's saying about us in our relationship to Christ. Death has terminated the old covenant relationship. It's gone. You have died to the old way of living. In fact, Paul even goes on in Romans earlier in Romans 6 to suggest that when you walk down into the pool in baptism and you are buried, it's symbolic of the fact that you have died with Christ, and then as you walk up the other steps out of it, it indicates you've been raised to a new life. Guess what? The old life's gone. The new life comes. That's the imagery. That's the symbolism of the right. That's why we, as Baptists, baptized by immersion upon confession of faith. See it? The imagery is pictured there. I, I, I've never really understood why you sprinkle somebody. We don't do that when we bury them. Could you imagine? Throw the body out there, sprinkle a little dirt on them, and walk away. That's not burial. Okay, so we are, we are buried with Christ. We have, we have died to the old life. We're no longer bound to that old way of living, which means that the Christian is freed from man-made or man-centered forms of living to a higher form of life. One that is centered on knowing Christ through his spirit within us. Here's how Paul puts it. Listen carefully to these words. Likewise, my brothers. Okay, likewise to the example I just gave you. Likewise, my brothers. You also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. To him who has been raised from the dead. In order that you might Bear fruit for God, 
For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law. See it? Our sinful passions, our licentiousness aroused by the law, our legalisms, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. You hear that? You hear what Paul is saying? Paul is saying there's a third way. One way is to chase after rules and regulations in the hope that that will keep you in the faith. The other is to just go pursue whatever passions that you think you can because you've been freed by grace. Both of those are the old way. Both of those have been done away with. You have died to both of those ways of thinking. So guess what you do? You now walk in a third way, a better way, a higher way, a spiritual plane higher than both of those, which is to walk by faith in Christ, by the Spirit, as he says, in the new way of the Spirit who comes and gives us now an entirely different outlook of life. Liberty in Christ is the true form of love. You're not loving your neighbor when you impose rules on them. Oh, you think you are, but you're not. And you're not loving your neighbor when you say to them, well, just go live however you want to. You're enslaving them when you do both of those things. Instead, you come to your brother and you help him or her to live in the new way of the Spirit. That is love. That is love. That don't look nothing like we here in our society anymore, does it? Nope. Nope. What we have today is we have a culture that has decided that all the legalisms of Christianity need to be thrown off in order to be enslaved in a whole new way. That's what we have. That's what we've done. You look at your culture today, you look at the society, you look at what people are demanding that they get to do, okay? And here's what they're doing. They're simply enslaving them, themselves, again. They think they have thrown off Christianity, and they have. They have. But they've embraced a new form of slavery. Now, I'm going to say something controversial here. Not unlike me. You know, I don't think it's a bad thing that our culture has thrown off some of the vestiges of Christianity that have been around. Because... I'm convinced that the vast majority of what passed for Christianity, successful Christianity, over the last hundred years has really been nothing more than legalism. It really hasn't been freedom in Christ. Look, I've been in enough Baptist churches in my life to hear enough preaching to know that the vast majority of preachers out there this morning are not preaching to their audience freedom in Christ. They're preaching to them enslavement to morality. Or now I'm preaching a new form of preaching, which is enslavement to licentiousness. So maybe it's a good thing that much of our culture has thrown off the old vestiges of Christianity because maybe now, maybe now, maybe now, the church will realize, the church will realize, because look, the reprobate won't get it, but the church, the truly regenerate, might really understand, wait a minute, we have been doing this wrong for a long time. We long ago forgot what our... Puritan brothers were insisting on. And that is to walk in the third way, in the right way, in the way of the spirit, rather than the spirit of legalism. We call them Puritans and our immediate reaction is to assume they're a bunch of legalists. You know what? They weren't. They were not. In fact, they were quite the opposite of legalists. They were not licentious, that's for sure, but they were libertarians. They really understood what it meant to be free in Christ. Liberty in Christ is the true form of love. 
We really want to love one another. We really want to love each other. Here's what we do. We stop trying to keep rules and regulations. We stop just running off to whatever we want to. We find the path to Christ by the Spirit of God. And we will love each other. So truth claim number one that John makes to support his thesis is that the believer is called to walk a unique path from the ways of the world. Which leads us to verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, again, sounds exactly like we already heard in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, verse 26, and 4, 2, and 3, when John said, quote, Children, it is the last hour, and as you've heard, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come into the flesh, has come in the flesh, is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, end quote. Okay, so, so John has already said this. We've already spent a lot of time with it, right? And again, I don't think John elaborates on it because the topic was well known. Okay, so once again, we have exactly the same thing in verse 7 that we had in verse 6. John doesn't elaborate on what any of that means as he did in First John because they know. But for our sake, let's consider this. Deceivers can be any of the following. First, there can be those who deny that there is a God, or there, that Christ is his Son, or that Jesus has come as God in the flesh, as John himself pointed out here, or, or that there's a need for salvation at all, or that there's any sort of judgment that awaits us of any kind. Right? What, what, do you think, what do you think Paul means when he says that men are suppressing the knowledge of God, the suppression, the knowledge of righteousness in unrighteousness? What do you think he means by that? What he means by that is what they are doing is they are purposely trying to deny all of these things so that they can say, well, there is no God, therefore there is no need for salvation, certainly there's no Christ, and don't worry, there's no judgment coming either. If secularism, if secularism has been successful at anything, it's been successful at getting the vast swath of Western civilization to believe there is no God and you're nothing but a purposeless bit of flotsam that happened to be here at this particular time. No purpose, nothing transcendent, no God, and most importantly, no judgment. No judgment. Okay, that's one kind of deceiver. And, and John certainly could be referring to that. In other words, those who want to prevent faith and redemption before its foundation, even. But let me suggest another kind of deceiver that you need to be aware of. And this is the one that I think John is really pointing to. Okay? It's those who attempt to sabotage the genuine faith of believers by convincing them that the Christian life is more than just faith in Jesus and a walk of simple submission and obedience. Or to say it in light of what I already spent most of my time this morning saying, those who want to impose their rules on you, or those who want to remove all rules from you. Those are deceivers too. And they are plenty. And they are many. Two examples. One is one that's been around since about the end of the 19th into the early 20th century, which we call the social gospel. Liberal churches embraced the social gospel like a vacuum cleaner in the early 20th century. And specifically, the social gospel is that the Christian must understand that to receive the blessings of Christ, he must give out physical blessings to others as a part of his redemption. The social gospel contagion embraced by liberalism was you are redeemed if you go out and help others. Your redemption is about going out and helping others. We call it the social gospel because it's all about taking care of social needs. It's all about taking needs within society. If you do that, that's a part of your redemption. See, God's going to really love you 
if you hand out sack lunches on a Sunday afternoon to poor people, right? God's going to love you so much more if you do that. Now, there's nothing wrong with that per se, right? But when it becomes a part of redemption, then it becomes enslaving. Now it becomes a part of redemption. The social gospel is that kind of thing, sabotaging genuine faith. So let me, I hate to do this, but I'm going to do it. Not only do we have to deal today with the social gospel, we also have to deal with another false gospel called the woke gospel. Now, get what this one is. This one is that the Christian must understand that to receive the atonement of Christ, he must atone himself for sins not directly committed by him. That's the social, I'm sorry, that's the woke gospel which is penetrating many parts of Christendom today. You must not only be atoned for by Christ, but you must atone for your sins and the sins of your forebears. Whatever they might be. And in this gospel, by the way, there is no atonement. It never is satisfied. Okay? Because I don't care how you cut the pie, reparations never actually repairs anything. That's the point. The woke gospel is also a sabotage. It's coming to try to convince you that, no, it's not about your relationship to Christ by faith. It's also about you going out into the world and and solving problems, fixing issues, whatever they might be. Neither of these false gospels provide a completed redemption. They place believers back under legalism or licentiousness where redemption is completed through personal action. That is the worst form of enslavement possible. To take the Christian and convince him or her that what they do adds to their salvation in some way. Subtly, but nonetheless it's there. John is writing a letter to warn his audience, listen to me, listen to me. Those who would spy out our liberty in Christ are ubiquitous. They are everywhere. They're everywhere. The spirit of Antichrist is everywhere, trying to sabotage the freedom we have in Christ. There are those who hate the fact that you have freedom in Christ. And some of them call themselves believers. They despise the fact that you will not live under their rules and that you won't cast off their, their that you won't take up your passions and cast off. That they hate that you have cast off their rules and will not take up their licentiousness. Okay? I finally got that out. They hate that. They hate it. They hate it. They're in the church. They're not out in the world. They're in the church. They're sitting in churches. And they're looking for ways to enslave their fellow brothers and sisters. Here's how Paul writes it in that letter I referred to earlier. Galatians chapter 2, verse 4. You want to hear hot? Here's hot. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us to to slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. See what he said? He said there are brothers who slipped in. You didn't even notice them. You didn't even see that they were there. They're deceivers. They're trying to convince you that you are free to do whatever you want to do or... We have a whole, thank you for coming to this church. We have lots of rules you can follow. They're trying to get you enslaved one way or another in the name of Christ. John says, watch out for them. They are there. Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Yes, there are obstacles to loving one another. But those who would spy out our liberty in Christ are everywhere. We must be aware. So the second truth claim behind the first is there will be deceivers who would try to sway you from the path of freedom. 
John says there's a path to follow, and it's not, it's not legalism, it's not licentiousness, it is a path of liberty, it is a path of following in Christ. But what follows from it is, and there will be those who will try to sway you from that path. Which will lead John to his third great truth statement that we'll look at, Lord willing, in verses 8 and 9. Next week, same channel.